Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. To share a little bit from the scriptures, I'm going to be in 2 Kings chapter 7, which um, may not be uh, the most familiar passage to you, but I think it has an interesting message for you. It's one that's challenged me. Um, by the way, uh, uh, I'm married to a wonderful wife named Karen. We've been married, just celebrated our 29th anniversary, so we have four children. Uh, two, of the, two of the girls got married last year, which made it a challenging year for us in many ways, financially. Challenging to get two girls married just three months apart. Emotionally very challenging as well. Um, to lose two daughters, you know. And I married them, you know, so people say, well, Charlie, how'd you do with that? And I, I said, well, it was, it was hard, you know, but uh, uh, but then I got to thinking, well, Charlie, you know, you're not losing two daughters. You're losing two tax deductions. And then it was really hard. So please have some sympathy for me. But my family stands behind everything I say, so to speak. Um when I was in seminary, I went to the same school Rodney attended, and uh, when I was there, I also started a church in a suburb of Fort Worth called Burleson, Burleson Bible Church. And when I started the church, I said, well, I'll, uh, they needed someone to teach the Bible, and they really wanted to grow in the Bible. There wasn't a Bible teaching ministry around. And I said, I'd be happy to do that, but I really don't think God's calling me into the pastor. I'll, I'll give you three years. I thought three years we could get the church established and going. Uh, so we started, and I stayed 19 years. It's kind of funny because it seems everywhere I've been in my Christian life, God has used me to help churches get started. Not so always to be the instigator, but in Maryland, where I am from, where my wife and I are from, we helped start a church and we met in a school. And then we moved on to Texas and our first church was meeting in a storefront. Now they're a big church. But each time, right when the church gets ready to build a nice church building, we move before the building's done. And uh, I've never had the privilege of preaching in a nice new church building as a pastor. So it, we moved out of Dallas. As soon as that church got ready to build, we moved to another town in Texas and helped the new church get started there. Right when they got ready to build a nice building, we, we started this church in Burleson. We met in schools again. So here for 20 years, I'm meeting in schools. And finally, after 17 years of meeting in the schools, <clears throat> we were able to build a nice building. Uh, we built a building that wasn't fancy, but it was adequate and uh, nice. After I pastored 17 years, but I finally was able to get my own office and I had big windows in it, not many hills in Burleson, but we we're on top of one. So I was able to look out over the city. Uh, I finally felt like, boy, I have a nice facility. And then when we built the facility, we get a lot of visitors and the ministries start growing and programs we couldn't have in the schools and so forth. We were able to have and and the leadership's growing. We've got leaders trained up and going. Uh, programs taking off. Everything's going well. It's kind of I love them and they love me. Couldn't have asked for a better situation, so I quit. What I began to see, you see, was about 10, 11 years ago, I started an organization called Grace Life Ministries. I think I started it with the idea of it helping to get this gospel message out around the world because it's not always clear, the message that is being preached. I have a passion for the clarity of the gospel. And I was doing some projects, printing projects, missions projects, and so forth. So I started this uh, organization with the blessing of the church, and they're very supportive of it. But it began to grow, and the church began to grow. And I began to see that for the second half of my ministry life, I'd probably be a better steward of my gifts if I would devote 
that time and, and my gifts to Grace Life Ministries because there's other people that could probably pastor this church and, frankly, do a better job than me. I have no problem admitting that because I always told the church that I, I didn't think I was the best in the pastoral gifts or in the preaching teaching gifts. And so they were a little surprised, but I stepped down with their blessing, and we still go there, actually. So uh, we're still all friends and all love each other. I wasn't having a midlife crisis. I just realized that, that uh, there's a message that needs to get out, and we need to do more to get that message out. And that's what caused me to, to do that shift. Uh, Grace Life Ministries, I simply, people say, what's Grace Life Ministries all about? Really, in a, in a nutshell, what it, Grace Life Ministries is, is we like to share the gospel of grace with the unsaved and the grace of the gospel with the saved. We like to share the gospel of grace with the unsaved who have not heard that it is faith alone in Christ alone, nothing that we can do that saves us. Isn't that a wonderful message? Because if it was any other message, then we would never know for certain that we're saved. If it depended on us in any way, on our performance, on our works or deeds, or our obedience, then we could never be sure. But Grace Life likes to tell those who are unsaved that uh, the message is that you believe in Jesus Christ who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who offers us eternal life, and you can know for certain that you're saved. Then we share the grace of the gospel with the saved. What do I mean by that? Well, I have found that there's a lot of Christians who don't live out that grace consistently. And so somehow, though they have been saved by grace, they get back under performance basis, and so they're driven or motivated by guilt or the fear of losing their salvation even. And they're not living consistently with that grace. What does it mean to live a life of grace, as Paul talks about in Romans 6, 7, and 8? That's really the key, but that's not our message today. That's what Grace Life Ministries does. And so we've got a lot of projects going around the world. And the best way to catch up on all of that is to, to get the newsletter that we send out four times a year with a Bible study. And um, one thing is for certain is as I, as I grew to love this grace message through my days in Bible college and then in seminary, I began to learn more and more about it and appreciate it. And the good news just kept getting better and better for me. And now it's great news. And I don't have, I've run out of adjectives to describe the way I feel about the gospel, that God has done so much for us that all we have to do is receive that gift through faith in him. To me, that's a wonderful message. And seminary, you see, seminary is a, a funny experience because you go wanting to, to gain all this knowledge and to feed from these professors and, and your learning so that you can go share it with others. But sometimes we get kind of stuck at the banquet table, at the buffet, in the buffet line, and we just keep cycling through it. And we just keep bloating on those blessings and getting fatter and fatter with knowledge. And, you, and really, pretty soon it becomes unhealthy. I have a friend who said something I really identify with. He said, I was a better evangelist. He's talking of himself, but I know what he means. He said, I was a better evangelist before I went to seminary. In other words, he had a passion to share, but then when he was distracted by this huge buffet table, he got caught up in the eating thing, you know? That can happen to us, can't it? We can start bloating on our blessings and the wonderful things that we're learning to the point where we neglect to share it with others. And that's why a passage like this, in 2 Kings chapter 7, really challenges me. It really haunts me to get that message out. Let's look at the passage together. And to understand the context for chapter 7, we need to back up a little bit into chapter 6. Elisha is a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel. At this point, Israel had divided into two parts, north and the south. The south was called Judah, and the north was called Israel or Samaria because Samaria was the capital, uh, you might recall. Elisha is the prophet. He's ministering to the northern part of Israel, trying to bring them to repentance. But Israel is under siege and uh, in war with Syria. 
King Benadad from Syria is constantly trying to uh, bring down Samaria and the northern capital of uh, uh, the, the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, when we come to chapter 6, Benadad actually, verse 24 tells us that he actually surrounded Samaria and besieged it. So they've cut off their water and they've cut off their food. And um, there was a great famine, it says, in Samaria. Indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab, that's about a pint, of dove droppings, or some people say a quart, but when we're arguing about dove droppings, I don't know that I care. A, ca a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Uh, and again, again, the measurements have various interpretations too, maybe five bucks for dove droppings. Is that too much for you? It, I don't think I would pay it, but you know, maybe. Um, a donkey's head. They were, they were down to eating the donkey's head. Donkey, first of all, was considered an unclean beast by the Hebrews, the Jews. So it tells us something about their situation. Not only that, but if you could just picture a donkey's head on a platter, you can tell how desperate they were. You know, kiddos, what if, what if you go home and your mom says, you say, what's for dinner? And your mom pulls out the tray of the oven and there's a, uh, two eyes looking up from you, from a donkey. That wouldn't look too good, would it? Well, that was usually the least desirable part of, well, maybe not the least desirable part of a donkey, but I, I wouldn't want to eat the head and I wouldn't want to eat dove droppings either. You know, I don't care how much discount you give, give me on those. But that's how desperate they were. And the king of Israel was passing by the wall one day, it says in verse 26, and he hears a, a woman crying out to him. And now, now get this, it gets even worse. And she explains the situation to him when he asks what's, what's going on in verse 28. And she said, there was a woman who came to me and she said, give me your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. I see you're nodding in disbelief, but I'm not making that up, am I? It's right there. You're seeing it yourself. And so we boiled my son and we ate him. And I said to her the next day, give me your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. And so she's complaining to the king that it's not only it's unfair, but I want to eat her son. I mean, this is just sick. But this is the desperation of the nation of Israel and the the city of Samaria, and it shows you that they had no other options. They had nowhere to turn. They needed a miracle of grace. They needed God to do something for them they could not do for themselves. Now, the king blamed Elisha for all this, and he, and he sent some people to go get Elisha's head. But Elisha says in chapter 7, he says, hey, you go and tell the king that tomorrow this time a sea of flour uh, shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley. That's about a bushel half bushel bushel of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, you're going to have a lot of food. It's not going to cost you much. In other words, he's saying that the problem will be solved. There'll be food. Elisha's saying there's going to be a miracle. So anyway, the officer uh, goes back and tells the king. But the, the scene now changes to verse 3, where there's four lepers who are at the entrance of the gate, and they're talking to one another. You know that lepers were considered outcasts. Not only because of the physical ailment that they had, but social outcasts because of their situation and religious outcasts because they were considered cursed by God. They had to live apart from themselves. I did just come back from India and I visited a leper colony there. The leper colony used to be way on the outskirts of the city. Now the city's grown up around it, so it's right in the middle of the city. But they're still isolated within the city, within the walls of their compound, and that's where they stay and that's where they live. And if their family members uh, need to or want to, they live with them. So it's, it's a terrible disease, but very much more of a stigma in that day. And these four lepers are sitting there 
and they're they're counting their options. Now here are their options. Why are we, why are we sitting here until we die? If they sit at the gate of the city, they're not going to have food, and um, they're just going to die. They won't let them usually into the city. They're not welcome there. But they said if we enter the city and the famine is there, we'll die there. If we sit here, we'll die. The third option, let's surrender to the Sumerians who have surrounded the city, the Syrians who have surrounded the city. And if they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. So they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they came to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, it says, to their surprise, no one was there. It was deserted. Why? Verse 6, God indeed had done a miracle. He did something that they could not do for themselves, that Israel could not do for themselves. The Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of the chariots and the horses and the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. And therefore they arose and fled at twilight, left the camp and attacked their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. They just dropped everything and left because God caused this miraculous sound to come sounded like they were besieged by an army themselves. What a miracle of grace. Well, the lepers walk into this deserted camp in verse 8, and man, those who had nothing to eat but dove droppings are now have every kind of food, if, if you like Syrian food, which I imagine they pretty similar to theirs. And they ate and they drank. They, they, they gorged themselves on the blessings they had. And then they started taking the silver and gold and hiding it. That's called hoarding when we take more than we need, you know, and just and hide it from other people. That's called hoarding, and that's what they did. They were not only uh, fat and happy, but now they're rich, and their, their situation changed overnight because of the grace of God, and then something happened in verse 9. That little God-enabled voice called our conscience said to them, as one expressed to one of, one of the other lepers, they said, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. You see, they got a twinge of conscience, and one of them said, this just isn't right. To keep this much blessing to ourselves, let's go and tell the king and his household. And the rest of the story is that they did. The king didn't really didn't believe him at first. He sent some people to check it out. They checked it out. It all checked out. They went. And Israel was saved by a miracle of God, by a gracious miracle that they could not do for themselves, but also because people who went and shared that message. You see, grace means go. When we who gorge on God's blessings experience the grace of God and know the grace of God, that salvation is through faith in what God has done and nothing that I have to do. Doesn't that motivate us or shouldn't that motivate us to go and tell others? So I'm challenged by this verse. I want to go back and look at verse 9 with you and look at the three segments of verse 9. The three things that these lepers say. First of all, they say, what we're doing is not right. What we're doing is not right. They were gorged with grace. They were bloating on their blessings. They were becoming collection ponds for what God intended to be channeled to other people to enjoy. Really, they had gotten too much of a good thing. You've heard the saying that you can't get too much of a good thing. 
I got two things to say about that. First of all, I wish I'd been part of that study. Second, uh, they've never heard of butter pecan ice cream because you can get too much of a good thing. You can stay in a Bible study too long. You can you can just live live among Christians and not associate with the outside world too long. You can bloat on the blessings of God's buffet of grace too long. And I think that's what those lepers were experiencing when they said what we're doing is not right. Are we doing all that we can do to share the blessings that we have received with other people? And what God has done for us in salvation is everything. He provided the sacrifice that we couldn't provide. He, he gave us the life that we needed. He gave us the eternal life that we needed to have a relationship with him. Every, every need for salvation and our growth or sanctification and our final glorification is provided by God. We rejoice in that. We do Bible studies uh, to understand it better. But at some point, if we do not share that, are we not doing wrongly? And I don't want to be your conscience today, but let's let God speak to you. Are you doing right in sharing what God has blessed you with? There's a second thing they say that, that haunts me as well. They say this is a day of good news and we remain silent. The very nature of grace is that I believe it is meant to be shared. Grace means go. It's at the heart of the gospel message. God came to us. Jesus had to come to us. He, he had to be involved in our world and in our life. Uh, we were his mission field. He came to a place that, uh, of which he, with which he was not familiar. He came from heaven to the light of heaven, the glory of heaven, to the darkness and the sin of earth, and he lived among us so that we could go and live with him. He left his comfort zone, to say the very least. This is a day of good news when Jesus was born. That's what gospel means, isn't it? Right. And, and as long as we keep the gospel of grace, a, a gospel of grace, then it is good news. But sadly, in many places, that grace message has become confused. And so people say, well, uh, you're not really, you're saved by believing in Jesus, but you also have to, you can fill in the blank. You have to be baptized. You have to live according to the Ten Commandments. You have to obey. You have to commit or surrender and, and so forth and so on. And suddenly that good news for me starts to take a nosedive. Because now you're telling me it depends on my performance and not what God has done. And if it depends on my performance, what that does to me is it makes me start to wonder, am I doing enough? Now, what I found is that in, in America, it's a big problem that people are wondering, am I really saved? Am I doing enough? But when you leave America, you can multiply that problem 10 times. Because in the countries where I have been, in Eastern Europe, America, uh, uh, India, and Africa chiefly, there are huge populations of Christians, but they are not all, to say the least, sure that they are going to heaven. Because it still is up to them the way it's been preached. To me, that is not so good news to tell someone, well, you know what? Here's how you can go to heaven. Maybe. My friends, that's dove droppings. That's all I have to say about that. This is a day of good news. The only good news for me is that Jesus has done it all and I can rest in what he has done. 
through faith. Because on any other basis, I'm not sure, and that's not good news. So I wonder today, if, first of all, you are resting in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. That he's paid the price for your sins, he's risen from the dead, and you have no other hope of eternal life other than that. Are you sure about that for yourself? And then is that the message that you're sharing with others? It's a day of good news. Someone said to me, when I understood that message, after being in, in different churches where it was so mixed up, they said it was like being born again all over again. And he said, I just want to go tell everybody. Well, good, because grace means go. It's inherent in good news that we tell other people. The third thing they say here is, um, come, let us go and tell the king's household. They felt a moral responsibility to share what they had with others. They felt that they had, they had a sense of stewardship, in fact, we could say, that they needed to share that message with others. You know, Jesus not only commanded us to go, but when we understand that command, like, for example, in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, or Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you should be witnesses in, to all of the world, beginning here in Jerusalem or Pineville and then to Samaria or North Carolina and to the other most parts of the world. Uh, when we understand that, that should be something that gives us purpose and direction and motivation in life. Paul understood that in Acts chapter 20. He said something that has become a verse very dear to me as I thought about my transition from pastorate into um, director of uh, Grace Life Ministries. In Acts chapter 20, speaking to the Ephesian elders, he had a prophecy that he was going to go to Jerusalem and be in trouble. And so he's saying goodbye to the elders very cheerfully, and he's, he's explained that he's going to have difficult times. But he's trying to explain to them and help them understand what really drives his ministry. So he says in chapter 20, verse 4, none of these things move me, these predictions of my difficulties. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. See, he's, he has a purpose bigger than his own life. He says, so that I may finish the race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to preach the gospel of the grace of God. That's what Paul was saying drove him. And I said, you know, Lord, that wouldn't be a bad purpose statement for the second half of my ministry life. But how about your life? God has given you the gospel of grace and the ministry of the gospel of grace and a wonderful channel and basis and foundation here at Stowe Memorial to do that and to spread that message to the rest of the world. Can you go with that message of grace to your neighbor? Can you go with that message of grace uh, and send missionaries who will spread that same message out to the rest of the world? Well, it may raise some questions for us. And let me just talk about some of these questions. Is there really a need for the gospel of grace and the grace of the gospel? Absolutely. On three fronts. First of all, to those who are uh, unevangelized. Many people who have never heard the word clearly taught to them. I mean, we, we, we went into Africa and we talked to school children like these. This is a crowd of 500 school children. We shared John 3.16 with them. They all had it memorized. But when you try to explain to them and you ask them, okay, now what do you have to do to receive eternal life? They're still answering things like, well, you have to be baptized. You have to live a good life. And they, it shows that they don't understand that it's by grace alone, in Christ alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. And that's what grace means. So there's work to be done there. We, we bring young people over and they go and share that kind of message in the schools. When, we, redu when we, we reduce people down to statistics, it doesn't mean as much. And I hate to give you statistics because I found out that 75% of all statistics are not true. 
But here, here's one to think about. I, I heard recently from a credible source that half of the people who have ever lived in the history of the world are alive today. When you think of that, and the principle of multiplication and compounding interest, however you want to picture it, half of the people who have ever li lived in the history of the world are alive today. What an opportunity to share the message of grace. It is an unprecedented historical opportunity where we can fulfill the words of Jesus to do greater works than he did. He never had a crowd as big as we have today with whom he can, we can share that message of grace. That, to me, is an exciting thought. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. There's the need of the unevangelized. <clears throat> There's the need of confused Christians around the world. Christians who don't really know if they're saved or not, don't, haven't had the gospel pr clearly proclaimed to them. I just came back from India and, and held pastors' conferences for a total of 600 pastors. This particular conference was 400 pastors. But I don't know if there was, I, I had a little trouble with understanding all about them because of the translation uh, process. There was not many, if any, of these pastors that knew for certain they were going to heaven. Is that sad to you, something you take so for granted? Is that sad to you? It was heartbreaking to me. So we talked in the book of Romans, and when we left, they were rejoicing. They say, for the first time in my life, I know I'm going to heaven, and I can't wait to go back to my church to tell, tell them how they can know for certain they're going to heaven, because that's what the book of Romans does to you. It's not that they were against that uh, idea. It's just that they've never really been taught from the Bible in a clear way. So many Christians are confused like that, and then Christian leaders are ill-equipped. Uh, they, they just don't have the tools. I don't blame them for having those views because uh, they didn't have teaching. I, they just get anything they can. We were the first Western teachers to go into that city of 400,000 people and teach them the Bible, they told us. So they just didn't have the tools and the teachers to share that gospel of grace with them. But Christian leaders are ill-equipped. Here we had an opportunity also to go to um, Ukraine and train the leaders of Evangelism Explosion for all of Eurasia, the 13 countries, 13 of the countries which were former communist satellites. And we, we trained them in the gospel of grace because they didn't have this idea of eternal security either. And it's a door that God opened up for us, and so we were able to do that as well. We go to Africa in the summer, and we train Christian leaders and pastors there uh, in the Bible, in the gospel, always the gospel message we start with, but then the Bible and how to study it for themselves and, and other things. And we're seeing wonderful results. So is there a need for the gospel of grace and the grace of the gospel? Absolutely. It's just an understatement to say that. It's hard to imagine that when you're feasting at the buffet of Bible studies, but there are people who don't even have a Bible. That's, one of the, that's the most requested piece of literature we get is a Bible. So how can we more effectively share the need, meet the need for grace teaching? Well, there's several things I'd like to say about that. First of all, we need to get together to do it because there's more power in numbers, and that's part of the reason that we formed the FGA, Free Grace Alliance. It's an alliance of different, many churches, many leaders, many ministries. For example, Grace Life, my ministry, is a member of the Free Grace Alliance. And I happen to be president of both organizations at the moment. That's a little confusing, but I won't be president of the Free Grace Alliance in eight months because it rotates. So we, we're doing things like that. Ministries that are really passionate about a clear message and want to help people out of the fog of doubt and insecurity 
we've we've gotten together in the free grace lines and that was what friday night saturday was all about so we want to connect people together and encourage them and equip them to go out um and encourage bible schools that have the message clear and um and churches that have the message clear we want them, them to know that they're one another that they're there and they share resources and things like that the second principle i would say is that uh, we, what we can do is to get there first I have found that it's so much easier if you get there first. Since we were the first Western teachers in India to be in this city, they just absorbed everything we said. They didn't argue with us. It was a different story in Ukraine because people had gotten there first and they had adopted some different theology. And so they thought they knew what what they believed and why they believed, and that's fine. But we had to, I mean, we had to back up and really explain what it means to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But if you get there first, the battle is won. My, I have a friend who used to be a commander in the tank corps in the army, and he said in tank warfare, this principle reigns. He says, whoever fires the first shot wins. What he, mean, what he means is that if you can get in position first, fire the first shot, the other tanks are scrambling around in confusion to get in position, and you can pick them off. So whoever fires the first shot wins. I try to live by that principle myself in sharing the grace message. If we can get in there first, there's no battle. You just show them that this is what Romans says, and they say, yeah, that's great. They don't argue with you about whether you can lose your salvation or not, because you've shown them from the Bible. You've gotten there first. Also, I say get strategic. And by strategic, things like sending grace-oriented literature, and that's part of the reason I started Grace Life, was just in, in, in Free Grace Alliance is doing this too, is trying to get that literature out there. Literature is very strategic. It has a long lifespan. People hold on to it. I went to India one uh, years ago, and, and I was reading a little kindred spirit magazine from our seminary. And I, I'd finished it. I was getting ready to throw it away. One of the pastors who was nearby saw me, and he said, what are you going to do with that magazine? I said, I was going to throw it away. He said, oh, don't throw it away. We like Kindred Spirit magazine here. When we can find them, we punch holes in them, we put them in a notebook, and we pass them around to every family in the church. Does that give you a little different perspective on literature and what it can do? That's why we're, we send hundreds of our books overseas to India and Africa at no cost to them because they can't pay for it. That's why we charge you. If you want to buy some, um, because you're you're paying for some pastor to have that book in India. I just paid to have it translated in Urdu, which is the language of the 60 million people of Pakistan. And uh, we paid for it to get translated. It sat for a few months, but then I, I sent a letter out and said, we don't have the money to publish it, print it in Pakistan. And the money came in just last week, and I'm praising God for that. So we sent the money over there, and they're going to print that in their language. because, And they're going to use it to teach pastors the gospel message. He says, nobody else has a clear gospel that I can find in Pakistan. So literature has a long lifespan. A Nigerian pastor said, a pastor without books is in a cage. He can go no further than the walls of that cage with books, however. A pastor can stand on the shoulders of other pastors and scholars and be much more effective in ministry. We can be strategic by sending literature. We can be strategic by sending missionaries who have a clear gospel message, who understand God's grace in all of its uh, simplicity. You can send your pastor with great tears in your eyes. You can send him to India for two weeks. He'll come back. He wants to go. They want him to come. I think we can get together and cooperate on that. Give you a little, I mean, give him a little vacation. So what can we do now? Examine your heart. Is there a real passion to share what you have enjoyed and taken perhaps for granted at this point? God has done everything for you. Do you have a passion to, to go and share that message with others? Are you more concerned with me and mine and the United States 
of America and the politics and the election than you are with the world that is perishing. Years ago, a missionary speaker got up in front of a crowd of 4,000 Christian leaders. It was in the late 70s when the Iranians had taken 52 Americans hostage. Some of you remember that. Some of you weren't born. 52 Americans were taken hostage by the Iranian terrorists in Iran. And America was every day following it on the news. And he said to this crowd, how many of you are praying every day for the 52 Americans to be released from the, the bonds of the Iranians? And all the hands in the auditorium went up. And he said, how many of you are praying every day for the millions of Iranians held bondage to the Islam religion? And four hands went up. And he said, well, I see that you are Americans first and Christians second. The challenge is to be a world Christian, to think like God thinks, that every soul is precious no matter where their geographical location or the color of their skin, and to get to help them get the message that we have been enjoying for so long in our living rooms and classrooms. You can give towards that end. You can pray towards that end. You can send grace-oriented missionaries toward that, towards that end. You can go yourself. We take trips and take groups, so you can keep in touch with us about that. But when we consider all that God has done for us, isn't it wonderful to bask in the blessings of God's grace? But even more wonderful to share those blessings with others. We ought to be saying that, you know, what we're doing may not be right. This is a day of good news. Let's go and tell others. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.